turn please to Lamentations chapter 3 Lance is reading from verse 1 through to verse 39 the first seven words are missing affliction by the rod of his roar he hath led me and caused me to walk in darkness and not in light Surely against me he turneth his hand again and again all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. He hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. He hath made me to dwell in dark places as those that have been long dead. He hath walled me about that I cannot go forth. He hath made my chain heavy. Yea, when I cry and call for help, he shutteth out my prayer. He hath walled up my ways with hewn stone. He hath made my paths crooked. He is unto me as a bear lying in wait, as a lion in secret places. He hath turned aside my ways and pulled me in pieces. He hath made me desolate. He hath bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. He hath caused the shafts of his quiver to enter into my reins. I am become a derision to all my people, and their song all the day. He hath filled me with bitterness. He hath sated me with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forget prosperity. And I said, my strength is perished, and mine expectation from the Lord. Remember mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them still in remembrance, and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's loving kindnesses that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silence, because he hath laid it upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust, if so be there may be hope. Let him give his cheek to him that smiteth him. Let him be filled full with reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. For though he cause grief, Yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. Who is he that saith, and it cometh to pass, when the Lord commandeth it not. Out of the mouth of the Most High cometh there not evil and good. Wherefore doth a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins?
evening we come to this little book of lamentations. And as I think we have probably noted, I certainly have noted, that as so often with the smaller books, we discover <clears throat> that we are being ushered into what we can only describe as the secret place uh, of the Most High. I have noted again and again that when we touch the most intimate things with God, the most vital things with God, he says very little. Just as if at times the Lord, when it comes to things which are the most precious to him and the most vital, as if he feels that to say too much would cheapen everything. And you therefore will discover in the scripture that again and again you will find a book like Isaiah which deals with the great economy of God, the whole purpose of God from beginning to end, all its different facets. you find in many other places such uh, uh, a setting forth of the Lord's mind, yet again and again in a little book like the Song of Solomon, or in a little book like Ruth, or here again in a little book like this little book of Lamentations, that which is most precious to the Lord is touched upon. And you know, we must be very, very careful that we do not judge a book's value by its size. If you will forgive a little illustration, many of you have been to the mountains. You have seen those vast, the beauty and the grandeur and the majesty of those vast snow-covered mountains. There is something about them which captures us and draws us back again and again. God made them. But we make a great mistake if we think that the little alpine flowers that grow on those mountains are not in actual fact as valuable and as precious to God and in his sight the whole history of them, the whole way of their life and growth and reproduction as valuable and as precious to him as those things which we consider to be so vast and so gigantic. There are some books that are like the mountains. Isaiah is like one of those great snow-covered mountains, gigantic in scope, absolutely gigantic. Lamentations is like a little gentian, a little alpine flower that you would overlook if you hadn't an eye for it. If you weren't sensitive enough and sympathetic enough to note those smaller things, you would overlook the little book of Lamentations, as many people do, as being a little bit morbid and perhaps a little bit uh, too uh, sentimental bit too much of a dirge. It's something that we feel we must overlook. But it is not like that at all. It is, as I have looked at it, it is as if, before we can go any farther at all, the Holy Spirit wants to leave in us no doubt as to the heart of God's work. Now, there's a lot that's going to back up what I have to say about this little book of Lamentations. <clears throat> One of the most 
remarkable things about this little book is why it's ever found its place here. Because it is a headache to all scholars. Why has this little book of Lamentations been inserted in the midst of the major prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Mountains. Tremendous uh, prophets with tremendous scope in what they've got to say. And yet inserted here is this little book of uh, Lamentations. In the Hebrew canon of scripture, uh, it was not in the prophetical books at all. It was usually found in what was called the writings, the third great division of the Bible. The law, uh, the prophets, and the writings, or the Psalms, which covered that whole last section. It was discovered in that uh, division of the Bible. And moreover, it was discovered in a little collection of books that was, a, was affectionately known by all Jews as the Five Rules, read annually, successively, at each of the great national fast days or feasts. Five little books, Song of Solomon first, Ruth secondly, Lamentations the center, uh, Ecclesiastes fourthly, and Esther fifthly. These five little books, all small books, made up what was called the five rows, and Lamentations occupied the center place. It was first placed with Jeremiah by the Septuagint. As far as we know, up till that time, which must have been, some people would say, 300 BC, others would say only 150 BC, it was placed for the first time with Jeremiah. It was placed after Jeremiah. And it, was, it, it came to be known by many as Second Jeremiah, or Two Jeremiah. Under um, a rather quaint uh, um, Jewish method of condensing the books of the Old Testament to 22, um, they uh, telescoped certain books, and two of the books they telescoped were Jeremiah and Lamentations into one and two Jeremiah, making it uh, a twofold book. All this then only underlines the more definitely um, the remarkable fact of the way in which this little book of Lamentations has been taken from where it originally was and placed in the prophetical section. Now, it is even more remarkable when we remember that Lamentations is technically not prophetical at all. It is poetical. And in many of the commentaries on the Bible, you will discover that scholars, Christian scholars, have taken it away from uh, uh, its place, uh, between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and have put it in under what they call the poetical books, because it belongs to the poetical uh, collection of books in the Old Testament. So, therefore, we ought to take the, the greater note of the fact that the Holy Spirit has given it its final position in the prophetical books and furthermore, not where we would expect to find it with the 12, what we call the 12 minor prophets, uh, but has given it a position 
in the midst of the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. What a remarkable thing that this little book of, of Lamentations always seems to occupy a central place. It is in the very midst of the four major prophets as it was originally placed under the Jewish arrangement in the midst of the five rows. To this very day, this little book of uh, Lamentations is read the world over in synagogues on what is, according to the Jewish calendar, the 9th of Ab, which is in, actually in our August, the 5th of August. And it is read to commemorate uh, five great tragedies in Jewish history, of which the burning of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in the days of Nebuchadnezzar was one of them. And until recently, until a few years ago, it was chanted from time immemorial at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem every Friday afternoon at the beginning of the Sabbath. As the sun went down, so every single Friday from time immemorial until quite recently when it went over into, the, into Arabic, uh, Arab hands, uh, it was chanted. Well, that all is just a little bit of background. What about the structure of this little book? It is truly remarkable. Everything about Lamentations, I'm afraid, uh, is remarkable. It consists of five poems. Uh, they correspond to our five chapters. Each chapter in our arrangement is, in actual fact, a poem. <clears throat> and in spite of the grief that they express and the pathos that you will find in this little book of Lamentations, we find it in one of the most involved forms of Hebrew poetry imaginable, what we call acrostics. The first four of these poems, that's chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and chapter four, are acrostic poems. That is, each um, uh, sentence, each clause, begins with a successive letter of the alphabet, uh, of the Hebrew alphabet. If we were doing it in our English alphabet, it would be A, the first sentence, B, the second, C, the third, D, the fourth, and so on. So you will notice straight away that in, cha in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4, you have 22 verses. Those 22 verses in chapter 1 and 2, each three, uh, three sentences, three clauses to uh, a verse, um, are, correspond to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3, which of course is the heart of this little book of Lamentations, has 66 verses. And each successive uh, three verses um, begins with the letter, uh, each letter of the alphabet. I have drawn it up here on the board. I've given you Knox's version. Knox is the only uh, translator of scripture who has actually, in throughout the Old Testament, uh, given us the acrostic form. It doesn't matter whether it's in a psalm, or whether it's in the last chapter of the book of Proverbs, or whether it is the book of, of um, uh, Lamentations. He has most ingenious uh, managed to give uh, a translation, keeping it to its original acrostic form. So here, Lamentation 1, 
have given you verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. You see, alone she dwells, the city erewhile so populous, etc. Be sure she weeps, there in the darkness her cheeks are wet with tears, and so on. And verse 3, cruel the suffering and the bondage of Judah's exile. Now, Lamentations 3, 1 to 4, I've shown you how the central chapter, or the central poem of these five poems, begins uh, with every three verses, beginning uh, each uh, verse, three coupled together, each of the three, beginning with uh, the successive letters of the Hebrew uh, alphabet. I've given you A and started with B, so that you can see the idea. Now then, all that only goes to show what a remarkable little book the Book of Lamentations is from every angle. Um, the last poem, the fifth one, chapter five, drops um, the acrostic method altogether. It's still a poem, but it is not an acrostic. The first four poems are in a very unusual rhythm, which is called the Kina rhythm, or many people, I understand, call it limping verse. It's, um, it's, it's especially uh, kept for dirges or elegies, um, that which, as it were, bewails misfortune or sorrow, uh, and it is characterized by the first, um, the second, uh, sentence or clause being sh considerably shorter than the first, giving that sense of a limp uh, all down there. What's called kina rhythm or limping uh, verse. There's something a bit lopsided about it, rather like our slow uh, march um, uh, at funerals. It was distinctive and kept uh, reserved for that which was meant to be a lamentation. Uh, on the cause of trouble or, or trial. <clears throat> now, all this just goes to show one thing, that there is no other book in the Old Testament that shows greater technical skill in its composition than the Book of Lamentations. It is absolutely unbelievable. Why is it unbelievable? Because, you see, when you read it, if you will read it, and I hope you have read it, but if you will, haven't, I hope you will read it, as a result of this, you will discover that far from holding back the feeling of the author, far from portraying the vividness of what he saw uh, in a vivid way, in a lively, vital, captivating way, you will discover that in spite of this unbelievable method, there is nothing stale, nothing dull, nothing heavy about this little book of Lamentations. It is remarkable that a book with such feeling, because it has been said that there is hardly any other book in the Old Testament that rivals the little book of Lamentations for vividness or for feeling, uh, for uh, expression uh, of, of sorrow, such vividness uh, of style. Well, maybe that will teach some of us one or two lessons. I don't think we would all together, um, left to ourselves, I don't think many of us would probably think that the Holy Spirit could possibly express uh, anything uh, 
uh, like that. Here is Jeremiah. He's seen the destruction of a city. He's seen everything overthrown. He set, sits down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to put the whole thing into writing. And, and he uses this amazing form uh, to do it. It is truly uh, a remarkable feat. Well, there we are. It is unrivaled for its beauty and it's unrivaled for its pathos. Here we have something which touches the depths of human feelings and yet at the same time it reaches the height uh, of faith. Uh, some of our loveliest phrases that we use often in hymns and elsewhere come from this little book of Lamentations. The Hebrew title, uh, as is the custom, uh, with Hebrew titles, is taken from the first word of the book, and therefore is the little word how. This word how, ika in Hebrew, is just a, a Hebrew exclamation of grief and sorrow. Um, I think in English we would say alas, but alas is a little bit uh, classical. Um, I don't think most people would say, oh, uh, they wouldn't say alas. Uh, if uh, you heard that someone you love very much had gone to the Lord or something like that, um, although perhaps you shouldn't say a lash anyway if they've gone <laughs> to the Lord, but um, you know what I mean. Uh, we wouldn't say a lash. It would be something else that we would, we would say. It was just the common Hebrew ex exclamation of grief uh, and sorrow. Our title has come through the Greek uh, uh, title in the Septuagint, and via the Vulgate uh, translation of the Greek. Uh, consequently, into our uh, version has come the word lamentations. But I think really that the Hebrew title, with its simplicity and directness, gets far nearer to the heart of this little book uh, than anything else. It is really a cry, as someone has described it, it's a sob of grief, that's all. Uh, it is almost, uh, lamentation sounds a little bit um, dressed uh, for really the Hebrew title uh, of this little book. It, we are introduced here immediately by the Hebrew title to the theme and the subject of, of this book. Well, there you are. I think that those few words will serve to at least give you, if nothing else, um, a headache. Um, because um, you ought to have one, if you're thinking. On the one side, you've got a man who has, is an eyewitness, or so we would believe from the account that's been contested and questioned, an eyewitness of an unbelievable event which he himself uh, had uh, prophesied and foreseen for a large number of years. It had come to pass, he had seen the most unbelievable things which are contained in these five poems. Things that made him shudder. He couldn't get away from certain things. It was obviously obvious that the sensitive and sympathetic Jeremiah had an imp uh, uh, some scenes etched and imprinted upon his memory, for particularly the question of little children. All the way through this little book, he refers to the little children, what happened to them. Uh, and so on, as if he saw scenes which were etched so terribly upon his mind that he never forgot them. And yet at the same time, we are led to believe that within a few months, if not immediately, of seeing what he saw, he put it into the form that we now have it. Why? Uh, I'm afraid I haven't got the answer. Uh, perhaps you would like to think about that. 
Why do you think he put it into this form? There's only one possible suggestion that might be an answer. It was that Jeremiah wanted to put this into a form in which it could be learned. That might be the only suggestion that might uh, be valid, I think, uh, as to why Jeremiah put this, this, uh, this cry of his uh, into this form. Now, what can we say about authorship and date? Are there any things we can say about the authorship and the date of this little book? In the Hebrew text, and this is important, Lamentations is anonymous. Uh, we have, if most of you will note in your versions, in the title, the Lamentations of Jeremiah. That has come from the Septuagint, uh, from the Vulgate, the Latin version, uh, from originally the Septuagint version. That is the oldest uh, version, translation of the Old Testament. Now in the Septuagint version, we have this most interesting introductory uh, verse, which we have not got in ours. Listen. And it came to pass after Israel was taken captive and Jerusalem made desolate, that, Jer that Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem, and said. That is the introductory verse, which is missing in our versions altogether, uh, to the Septuagint version. And it undoubtedly embodies an ancient tradition, even at the time that the Septuagint uh, version was in, the, in its translation, uh, this idea of it uh, being uh, connected with Jeremiah, the destruction of the city just afterwards, uh, evidently it, it's being put there, embodies a very old tradition concerning the authorship of Lamentations. And certainly the voices of antiquity and of tradition are absolutely unanimous. Right down to recent years, it is unbelievably unanimous, just as almost as unanimous as it was over the authorship of the book of Jeremiah. Um, the Syriac version, the Septuagint, the Vulgate, the Targum of Jonathan, the Talmud, Josephus, the rabbinic scholarship, early Christian scholarship, right down to recent scholarship, some hundred and also years ago, all have assigned the little book of Lamentations without any question whatsoever to Jeremiah. Indeed, Jeremiah's grotto to this very day is still shown outside Jerusalem in what is considered to be the hill of Golgotha, a little cave in the hill of Golgotha, of Cal Calvary. Um, it is still shown uh, to visitors as the cave in which Jeremiah wrote the little book of Lamentations. Perhaps some of you have seen it. Uh, that's the tradition. It has never been questioned. Until recently, and as has been the wont of all modern scholarship, it has seen fit to question it and question it very thoroughly. Um, the authorship of Jeremiah has been uh, um, questioned on two distinct counts. Firstly, the difference of style. We are asked, is it even possible to imagine that Jeremiah was even capable of uh, this kind of composition? 
I might say we might just as well ask ourselves whether Jeremiah was capable of baking bread. Uh, but that's one of the distinct uh, counts upon which the whole authorship of Jeremiah is questioned. Is he indeed capable? Uh, is he capable uh, of such a composition? Uh, perhaps some of you will think that it's a little bit strange uh, to ask uh, whether he was uh, capable. There we are. Um, the whole point is this, that in his prophecies, in what we have written down by Baruch, by dictation, obviously the acrostic method never came into it, nor did poetry. It seems to me a foolish uh, uh, question uh, to ask. Um, this would be the only single uh, piece of poetry that we have from the hand of Jeremiah. Um, it would be as if I were to ask uh, one of you uh, whether you, I might ask one of one of you whether you were indeed capable of writing something in script. Uh, the point is, in your usual writing, you probably never have done. It's a, it's a something somewhat amazing um, thing in actual fact to built so much upon, you see they've built a tremendous amount upon what they call this difference of style. It's not actual difference of style because they've had to admit that it's either Baruch who is the author or an eyewitness or someone very close to Jeremiah because they use Jeremiah's phraseology, they've imbibed Jeremiah's spirit, they've got Jeremiah's atmosphere, they've got Jeremiah's attitude to the law, but it's not Jeremiah, because Jeremiah, uh, from what we can gather, is not capable of this kind of composition. True, of course, it is that Jeremiah in his prophecies comes to us as a very vivid man, and a man who uh, breaks down a lot. Uh, he... he I suppose upon that ground they question whether he could have, have um, put anything into this kind uh, of composition. But they built an awful lot upon it. Secondly, its technical form points to a later date from the events which it describes. They say surely uh, um, an eyewitness would not have recorded what he had seen in a form like this. It's obvious that this has been recorded quite some centuries later. Now that I think is much more valid. Um, I think that's quite uh, reasonable uh, to question that. Uh, that if a person had seen what he'd seen, surely he couldn't have put it into a form like this almost immediately. It must have been many, many, many years later that it was put uh, into this uh, form which you would have thought needed quietness and peace and a period of tranquility to sit down and to work out such a complex method uh, and rhythm. Well, there we are. So, it's been suggested that Baruch might be the author, others, some contemporary of Jeremiah, others, um, a number of unknown authors. Um, they consider that uh, the five poems are probably from different hands, and others have even uh, attributed to an, an unknown author of the siege of Jerusalem in 170 BC, and others have even gone so far as to attribute it to the siege by Pompey in 63 uh, AD. So you can just see uh, the wild uh, uh, speculation that there has been upon the authorship um, of uh, this little book. Well now, can we say anything about it? Well, it seems to us, if we look at it reasonably and clearly, 
it seems that it is the work of Jeremiah. Because there is certainly much more in favor of Jeremiah's authorship of the Book of Lamentations internally and externally than against it. For instance, it is an interesting thing that the Kina rhythm uh, is found in one or two places in the book of Jeremiah and only there in the whole of Old Testament history. Somewhat remarkable fact. Then again, there is a sorrow and a sympathy which characterizes Jeremiah, which comes even more out into the open in this little book of Lamentations. And then again, there is the eyewitness account. We know for a fact that Jeremiah was there. If we, we've got to say that the, whoever wrote the Book of Lamentations was remarkably like Jeremiah. Uh, it seems almost unbelievable two people so alike, and may I say that Jeremiah's temperament is a somewhat singular type of temperament. They're not everywhere. Um, uh, it, was, it was an eyewitness. It points again to Jeremiah. An eyewitness account of what happened. Uh, evidently an eyewitness account someone who was left and not taken. Uh, into Babylon, which again points to Jeremiah. It is the fulfillment, and it is remarkable how the whole book uh, marks the fulfillment of his prophecies. All the prophecies of Jeremiah are here uh, recorded as fulfilled, each one, right down to the mothers uh, actually uh, boiling their children to eat. That was one of Jeremiah's prophecies. Each one is recorded as fulfilled. So again, those who do not believe in Jeremiah's authorship have got to say that it must have been a disciple of Jeremiah or it must have been Baruch uh, who um, recorded this. And then again, what about the attitude to the Lord? I don't think it's, we've got to be very careful that we uh, do not copy Jeremiah's attitude. It may have been excused in Jeremiah, but we have to be a little careful. You know, Jeremiah had a most remarkable way of... Um, how can we say, not tempting the Lord, but in the most remarkable way of, uh, of speaking with the Lord. And in Lamentations 3, you have the most remarkable um, uh, account of what he feels the Lord has done to him and with him, which is all in keeping with what we know of Jeremiah in his uh, prophecies. The whole atmosphere of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, and of this little book of Lamentations uh, are, are one. It's one atmosphere. All that is very much in favor of the authorship of Jeremiah. That's internal. But external, externally, there is a good deal more in favor. The whole voice of antiquity and the voice of tradition are absolutely unanimous. There is not a dissenting voice anywhere down to the long centuries of time has there been a question raised until uh, recently when modern minds got to work on the whole subject and felt that Jeremiah was just not capable of uh, this kind of composition. So I think that we can say, uh, if we look at it all reasonably, that Lamentations is the work of Jeremiah, uh, written shortly after the fall of Jerusalem. There was only three months given to him between the fall of Jerusalem and his being taken into Egypt. And I think that we can say that, uh, quite reasonably, that Lamentations is the work. I think we can agree with antiquity, we can agree with tradition on this point, uh, and we can agree with the Septuagint version of the law, which, of course, the New Testament church used. Uh, and uh, we can say that uh, this is the 
the author of this little book was indeed Jeremiah, and that it was written, therefore, just after the fall of Jerusalem and before he was taken into Egypt, and so we can place its date quite decisively as 586 BC. Well, anyway, that's authorship and date. Some may not entirely agree on that, but um, I think that anyone who studies these five poems must come, whatever problems you, uh, you face in it, you must come to, a, if you've read the book of Jeremiah's well, you must come to an agreement on one thing, that there is a, an emotional unity that runs right through Jeremiah and Lamentations. You're dealing with the same type of man, the same temperament, the same spirit, the same spiritual character here. What is the key to this book? Let's leave the question of uh, authorship and date. It is, after all, secondary. Uh, although we want in these studies to get down to these technical facts as well and face them. What is the key to this little book of Lamentations? <clears throat> there can be little doubt as to the key. Uh, it is travel. Uh, there's no other book in the Old Testament that deals with it except this little one. And its very Hebrew title illustrates that. In the book of Jeremiah, uh, we have seen the inward character that is essential that God must have in a ministry preparatory to recovery. Uh, you remember that we have discovered that Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are three aspects of a preparatory ministry of the Lord in the Old Testament, at the end of the Old Testament age, preparatory ministry with one object in view to recover what had been lost and to rebuild the land, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of God. In a little while, I trust, whether it be next week or soon, we shall be considering Ezekiel and then we shall be considering the Lord willing, by his grace, the book of Daniel. But before we do so, we've first got to understand the little book of Lamentations. The Holy Spirit has put it here, as we've already mentioned. And it is as if before we, before, um, we can leave this question of inward character, we must understand that travail is linked with it. You see, why is the Holy Spirit put the Book of Lamentations here? It is as if, I mean, it would have been so easy as some people have suggested. Why isn't Lamentations just added on to Jeremiah? Jeremiah, as we all know, if I may use the word without being irreverent, is a hodgepodge. It's not even chronological order. It would have been no difficulty to have inserted Lamentations somewhere, and instead of 52 chapters, uh, had 57 chapters. It would have been no difficulty. So why has the Holy Spirit allowed this little book to remain an entity, and then placed it between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, between uh, these aspects of this preparatory ministry, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you know as well as I do that Ezekiel speaks of a ministry, a ministry of the word, a, 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 a ministry of definition, 
We know that Daniel was never even called a prophet because his ministry was otherwise. His essential ministry was prayer, was intercession. We know that Jeremiah speaks to us of the inward character that God must have. The man is more important in the book of Jeremiah than the ministry. He's more important than the message. The man is the message. As if God is, is saying that this is the first thing of all. Before we can have a ministry of definition, before we can have a ministry of intercession, we've got to have the man. Some people think that you can have a ministry of definition, you can have a ministry of prayer without having the character. God says, no, we must have the character first. Have the spiritual character in the people, and then this ministry of definition and this ministry of prayer will all be in its right place. But before we can even look at the other two aspects of this preparatory ministry, we are halted at this book of Lamentations. And travail is linked with, intimately with spiritual character. Now, this is very, very important that we should understand. I want to say one or two things. I think some of you will already know. Others, it may come as a little bit of a shock to. You see, travail is not just a matter uh, of prayer or intercession. Some people think that travail is prayer. Travail is intercession. It is not. Although, obviously, travail finds its expression in prayer and in intercession, it is much deeper than words. Travail is something uh, within a person's being. That's the only way you can express it. It is deeper than words. It is expressed in Romans 8 as groanings which cannot be uttered. Something inexplicable, something inexpressible, something that is deeper than words, something which certainly gives rise to words, certainly gives rise to prayer, certainly gives rise to intercession, but all the time the person who is praying and interceding, who is travailing, is conscious that their words don't mean anything, really. They're conscious that there's some agony of the spirit within their essential being, within them, which, which they, cannot, they cannot put into words, fight as they may to put into words, Somehow fight as they may, strive as they may to express. They cannot express it. When they do express it, they are very conscious of the poverty of their expression and so on. Often it is the kind of agony, that the kind of pain, spiritual pain, which just uh, only can find silence. Uh, it just cannot get out. Groanings which cannot. Be uttered. That's how Paul described it. And he linked it with travel. He said, you know, brethren, brethren, the whole creation grown and travel in pain together until now. And then he said, we also. Now this is the secret of this little book of Lamentations. It is something inherent Travail uh, is not something essentially to do with the lips. It is not something essentially to do with the mind. It is something to do with the spirit. Deeper than consciousness, 
deeper than expression, deeper even than tangibility. It is, uh, it is that within which is inexpressible and un, uh, inexplicable. Now, if we take Jeremiah and Lamentations together, we learn a vital thing to do with travel. We learn this, that there must be a capacity for travel. Uh, there must be a capacity for travel. What is that capacity? Spiritual character. It boils down to this, the amount of Christ now, some of you, I, it may not help you, it may help others of you. Some of you at times may just be conscious of something in you that um, cannot be explained, cannot be expressed. You're, you're, as far as you know, you're walking with the Lord. As far as you know, all, all is right between you and the Lord and with his people. And yet there is something which can only be described as a pain. As I can't explain it, it is a spiritual thing, but as something of an agony, something of a movement, something of an activity, something of a yearning, something that is on the move uh, and causing uh, exercise and distress within you, within your spirit, and yet you cannot put your finger on it. Uh, now that is travel. And for there to be travel, there has to be a capacity. You see, you take a man like Jeremiah, you know, uh, it would be cheap and tawdry. It would have just been tinsel if a man without spiritual character had, had written something like the Book of Lamentations. You would have all be, you would have somehow revolted against it. You would have felt an awful revulsion over the whole thing. But you don't feel any revulsion with Jeremiah. No sense of, of, uh, of something re repellent, something revolting about Jeremiah, because there's a spiritual character. And you see, the spiritual character is the capacity. Do you remember we said when we were taking the book of Jeremiah that one of the things about Jeremiah was capacity for suffering. Well, here we have got it. You see, uh, it is a it is a capacity. It is the amount the amount of Christ within. It is a spiritual character. You get a spiritual character, and there will be travail. And the more there is of spiritual character, the more you will travail. Now, don't you turn your noses up if I may use a colloquial expression at this whole thing of travail, because all of us are here because of it. The greatest lesson that we can learn is that it was the travail of Christ that brought us into being. And let no one despise this question of travail. We used to talk about it rather a lot. We don't talk about it so much now, but it's nevertheless true. How did God produce a new man? How did God get a family? Through the travail of his son. His son was put into an, ex into an experience of which Jeremiah's experience was the Faintest foreshadowing. He knew something of this inexplicable way. This strange paradox 
of being with God and yet forsaken of God. Being in light and yet being in darkness. Having joy and yet knowing sorrow. And through the travail of the Lord Jesus, a family has been produced. He shall see of his travail. The fruit of his travail. Now, we are told in the uh, epistles of Paul that we are to be introduced into that travail. Paul speaks of traveling over them until Christ be fully formed in them. He speaks of the church, the churches in Galatia. I am traveling again over you until Christ be fully formed in you, he, he says. He speaks of, and to the others at Corinth, he says, you may have many teachers, but you've only got one father in Christ. I begot, I begot, begat you all. Spiritually, I traveled, and you came into being. This is what it means about the afflictions of Christ which have been left for us to fill up. There is an amazing fellowship of his suffering. Not just a kind of bearing of persecution necessarily, but the entering into the travail of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to say something which may not be understood by everyone, but it is, this, it is the heart of this little book of Lamentations. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of travail and has been from the beginning. Because travail is a principle of all life, natural and spiritual. Nothing, nothing in the whole natural creation is here without this principle of travail in one form or another. Nothing in human life is here without this principle of travail to produce human life. It is only the smallest expression of an eternal principle in the Godhead within God himself. This principle of travail to produce new life. Now the Holy Spirit is the spirit of travail and it doesn't matter where you turn, you will find that it, is, it, it speaks of the Holy Spirit always travailing, always, as it were, um, exercised within himself before he brings something forth. You know, it speaks of him hovering like an eagle, brooding over the face of the waters before the creation of the world. There was an exercise in the Holy Spirit. It didn't just happen. He brooded over the, the natural creation. He, he hovered over it. It wasn't as so many people think God sort of slapped his fingers and the thing just fell into place. It is expressed that the Holy Spirit brooded over the face. What does it mean? What does it mean? He, 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 he was exercised over it. In every single instance, in all the creative activity that you will find, in which the Holy Spirit is the source and the agent, you will discover that it is travail, which is the principle which brings something out. And it is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of travail within us, who is seeking to produce this travail. He is seeking to produce it in us, in order, in order, to fulfill God's purpose. The Holy Spirit knows that no successive step in God's economy is ever taken without this spirit of travail. Now that's what it means when, when Paul, speaking of the final great act of God, when the whole natural creation will be released, released from its bondage to corruption and limitation, when it will be released, he says it groans and it travails, and he says, now then, we... We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself, 
within us, groans with us. You see, the Holy Spirit inside of us gives rise within our spirit to a united fellowship of travail, the Holy Spirit and our spirit. And this, this travail cannot be expressed. It is in groanings which cannot be uttered. You only groan when you're, when you're in pain. When you can't be relieved, you, you must have known it, some of you anyway, what it is to be really ill and, to, and have real pain and not to be relieved. You groan. Why do you groan? It's the only way to relieve yourself. Groanings which, which cannot be uttered. Do you see? The Holy Spirit is, is on the move to effect something. Now that is the little lesson of this book. And we must remember that Jeremiah is not instructing us in this book, whatever he might have felt afterwards about it, whatever form it's come to us, in the beginning it was just the pouring out of his own heart in, in, in heartbroken grief uh, and sorrow uh, to the Lord. Indeed, I suppose the greatest commentary on the book of Lamentations, if you want to go away and read it, is Isaiah chapter 62. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. Because it is a remarkable thing that the whole of these five poems are taken up with Zion. Now, it's interesting because Jeremiah's prophecies don't mention so much the question of Zion and Jerusalem. But this little book is all taken up with Zion. All is to do with the daughter, the virgin daughter of Jerusalem. All is to do with the city of God and his habitation. It is Zion from beginning to end which is the key to this little book. And you will notice that Jeremiah's travail is all, to, all towards Zion because Zion is ruined, because Zion is destroyed, because Zion has gone into captivity. His travail is that Zion may come back. She may be restored. And you remember that little word that the Lord spoke through Isaiah? Uh, give him no rest, take no rest, and give him until Zion's light go forth. In Isaiah chapter 62, that is Lamentations. It's just as if, I might say, Jeremiah read the prophecies of Isaiah, which he may well have done, and this little, this little book came out of what he read in chapter 62 about not letting the Lord go, himself taking absolute no rest, but giving himself to a ministry now, later on, when we come to Daniel, we shall deal much more fully with this question of prayer, because that is Daniel's uh, great contribution to God's purpose in his day, uh, apart from his ministry and his message. His great contribution was his prayer ministry, his intercession. But you see, the Holy Spirit, before we can go on, has stopped us at the little book of Lamentations, as if he wants to link travail with character. Now, you all know that. Before a person can travel naturally, a woman, she must be of a certain age, a certain stature, a certain maturity. And that's exactly what this is dealing with. Spiritually, there's got to be something there. You, got the, you had the something there, you take the Holy Spirit and something will be begotten. You and the Holy Spirit. 
Well, something will come out of that union. Well, there we are. It's, it's the amazing paradox of travail that we find in this little book. It is an amazing paradox. I don't know whether most of you have considered, I think more and more of you as you're growing up and having families and this, have got to think a little more about the paradox of travail. Do you not think it's a remarkable thing that before new life can come into being, you've got to go into the presence of death itself? Do you not think that's the most remarkable thing? That before new life can come in, there is something which has about it all the possibilities of death itself. Why has God ordained this remarkable thing, this paradox of new life? It is a remarkable thing. Now, that is the little book of Lamentations. It's a paradox. Now many people might say to me, oh, but look here, you know, I just don't understand what you're talking about. Because when I look at my New Testament, and when I read in some of the Psalms, I hear about peace and joy and fullness of life and everything else. Well, of course you do. But I'm talking about a paradox. I'm talking about a paradox. Brother Nee said some Christians are wounded. And all their life, they will only know this paradox of birth. Look at Lamentations chapter 3, if you want any evidence. Now, to, to many people, if they want to find contradictions in the Bible, they've only got to turn to Lamentations 3, I give you it. You can All the contradictions you want are in Lamentations chapter 3. It tells, it pitches the most terrible picture about the Lord. Someone who doesn't guide him. Someone who leads him into darkness. Someone who gives him gravel to eat so it breaks all his teeth. Someone who's like a bear lying in wait to destroy him, to tear him in pieces. Someone who's taking his peace away. And the rest of the word of God is all about coming into peace. All about having peace and joy and life and everything else. And here we've got Lamentations 3 and the whole thing seems to be completely gainsaid. Oh. You see, that's just the message of this book. It doesn't mean that everyone's got to come into it. It is the message of Lamentations. Uh, you, you, I think, will know that uh, in many ways, when you, when you really look at uh, a man like Jeremiah, you find him a man who's been used of God to effect God's economy, God's purpose, uh, more deeply and truly than many others. Why? Because of this. Well, that is the paradox of this whole question of travail. And um, we must understand it. It's no good just passing over this. Some people don't like this kind of thing. But uh, you can't go through books of the Bible without suddenly coming head-on with something like this. When we're dealing with Isaiah, we're dealing with all joy and peace. Uh, and then when we come to Lamentations, we're right in the heart of something quite different. Here it is. I think Lamentations chapter 3 is one of the most remarkable things ever written because of its realism. I think there were many, many saints who wouldn't have dared put down into black and white what Jeremiah put down. They would have been, they would have been fighting to death or being hounded off. Well, they certainly would today 
I wrote something like that down there. I wouldn't be welcomed on any platform here or anywhere else uh, for very long. They would say, well, we've never heard of anything like that. That's absolute sheer heresy uh, to write that kind of thing about the Lord. But no, it was Jeremiah's experience. It is the paradox of travail, being in the presence of death so that new life can come into being. That's all. Well, there we are. I think that's as much as we need to say. On the other side of this board, there is the outline of this book, a very simple outline. Five poems. You look at chapter one of Lamentations, you will discover it is the condition of Zion which is the subject. Zion desolate, Zion compromised, Zion afflicted, Zion broken, Zion captive. What a terrible condition. There it is. The poem, the first poem, uh, is full of that. From verse 1 to 11 is a description of the condition. But then, from verse 12 to 19, you suddenly find the third person gives way to the first person. And you will discover that it is Zion confessing her sin publicly. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? She says, draw near and see if there has ever been sorrow like my sorrow. Then she begins to confess her sin. I have sinned. I have rebelled against the Lord. This is all justly my lot. Then from verse 20 to 22, Zion confesses to the Lord. Having confessed publicly to the nations, she confesses to the Lord. Now that reveals straight away something of Jeremiah, does it not? Because there are times when Jeremiah and Zion are absolutely identified, and it is very hard to know, is it, is it Jeremiah who speaks, or is it Zion? He, has a, he and Zion are identified. That's travail. When you are really identified with, with what God's after, you and it becomes so absolutely one that you can't distinguish, really. The second uh, poem in chapter 2 is the Lord, the chastener of Zion. Every judgment, every desolation is traced to the Lord as the chastener of Zion. Uh, from verse 1 to 10, he is described. All the misery, all the brokenness, all the dispersion, all the judgment, is all traced out. The Lord has done it. The Lord has done this. The Lord has done that. The Lord has done the other. The Lord is the chastener of Zion. From verse 11 to 19 of that chapter 2, uh, you find Jeremiah pleads with Zion. He, he pleads with Zion to... to, to Enter into prayer with the Lord, to, to, to come before the Lord uh, and to seek him. And then from verse 20 to 22, Zion speaks herself to the Lord. Now, when you come to chapter 3, you have come to the heart of this little book of Lamentations, as we have mentioned. And we find the very heart of God's service is depicted here in chapter 3. It's revealed here. What is the heart of God's service and God's work? It is not for everyone. Don't think that every one of you will be called. I have said it needs a capacity. When you've got a certain spiritual character, you will find it happens. Something's conceived within. Something starts to oh, begin to develop within. And before long, you're in the whole process of something being, uh, some further step being uh, taken in God's way. You are in it. You have become part of this great travelling instrument of the Holy Spirit. But it requires a capacity. 
Chapter three of Lamentations reveals a man who has reached that capacity. And you will see straight away, you will discover here, the heart of God's work is the cross. The way Jeremiah has to go in God's work. It's not a question of surrender. Oh, that's primary. It is not a question of separation. That is primary. It is not a question of obedience. That is primary. It is a question of suffering, inexplicable suffering. Read through those first verses. From verse 1 to verse 18, read about the dealings of the Lord with Jeremiah. You'll find he walled his way, closed him in, uh, and all these other things that we have mentioned uh, that he did to Jeremiah. He did to Jeremiah. The Lord's dealings with Jeremiah. That's the point. That's the cross. The Lord doesn't take delight in doing it. The whole point is this. Jeremiah was entering into the sufferings of his Lord. And the sufferings of his Lord were entering into <coughs> Now, it's a very wonderful thing that in this New Testament age, something of the sufferings of Christ have been left. I have mentioned it. A strange verse of Colossians, isn't it? Something left. something, And we can fill them up. Left for us. As if the Lord wanted fellowship in this matter. And whilst we cannot enter into his atoning work, he has left something of, this, of, this, of his travail to those who will enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. From verse 19 to 39, you will find Jeremiah's spirit. Faith meekness, understanding, from verse 19 to 39. What a remarkable reaction is Jeremiah's there. Faith, great is thy faithfulness. I've always found it one of the strangest things in the Bible, that he could speak about the Lord like he did in the first 18 chapters, and then suddenly say that his compassions, they fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, the Lord is my portion, saith my soul. And then comes into this wonderful description uh, of Jeremiah's attitude to the Lord. He says it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. It's good for a man to give his cheek to the smiter. It's good for a man to put his mouth in the dust. Now you know what that is, don't you? Meekness. That's meekness. That is a capacity, that is the capacity for travail. That means something's been produced in this man which doesn't answer back. That's all. Jeremiah's learned his lesson. I'm afraid in the first 18 verses you would almost think he was hitting out at the Lord. But he's not. He's describing just what <coughs> happened. That's all. From then on he says, it's all right. That is the Lord's done all this. That's all right. I know how to wait for the Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. Now that, I might say, was no easy little thing like some of us. We come on a lovely bright sunny morning and the birds are all twittering outside. We all gather around the Lord's table and someone says, great is thy faithfulness. And someone says, Amen. That's not Jeremiah's experience here. He has a list of things that have happened to him. He has seen everything now in ruins around him. Jeremiah, if he did know it, he may have known it, was going to be taken forcibly into Egypt and was going to die, if we believe tradition, by stoning. That's what lay ahead of him. And yet he was able to say, Great is thy faithfulness, thy compassions, they fail not now new every morning. He was able to say, I take it all. It's good. I can wait. In the end, he had an understanding of the Lord. All right, then, from verse 40 to 51, you have the prayer travail of Jeremiah, and from verse 52 to 66, you have something of his persecution. 
words. All this is the travail of Jeremiah. This poem reveals the heart of him. And then in uh, chapter 4, you have the extent of God's chastening, the siege of Jerusalem described. Well, I'm not going to go into that at all because it's self-explanatory. It just tells you something of the terrible degradation and uh, destruction and dispersion of God's people. Oh, what a terrible, terrible chapter that chapter 4 is. But it just describes the extent of God's chastening. May God never have to chasten us in the way that he had to chasten his people then. What a way he led them to cure them. To cure them. They had rebelled. They would not listen. They would murmur. They would not be obedient. And so they had to go this way to be cured. And lastly, as that lovely chapter 5, the intercession of Jeremiah. I want to put that, underline that word intercession because it's something further than travail. Travail is something, as I've said, that's inward. Intercession is something that is more outward. They are linked. <coughs> Undoubtedly, I think this chapter 5, this fifth poem, was the intercession that came out of Jeremiah's travail. And it is interesting, the suggestion by some scholars, that this chapter is corporate prayer. Of course, it's all our and we. You'll note that, I think, if you read through it. But some have suggested it's not just Jeremiah interceding uh, on behalf of all, but it is an actual fact, uh, a prayer that all together uh, pray. There's some evidence for that possibility. Certainly it's been used ever since as, as a prayer for, for God's people under the old covenant. Um, if that is so, isn't that a beautiful thing that out of Jeremiah's travel there came together a, a company, uh, a remnant, uh, who engaged in the ministry of intercession. What a strength to Daniel later on this must have all been, because it was written day of, of uh, he not only had the book of Jeremiah because it says he found in there that 70 years were to be accomplished I have no doubt he had the book of Lamentations as well so that must have been some comfort to him um, well there we are that's the little book of Lamentations what a wonderful little book it is what is its message its message is a very simple one it is this cold question of travail that's all don't fear it I was going to say, don't seek it in a wrong way. Don't seek suffering for suffering's sake. That's foolish. Grow up in the Lord. And just as when you grow up normally, there comes a time when there's a capacity, stage where it's possible for new life to come, to be the, the producer, the begetter of new life here with Jeremiah before we can go on to Ezekiel before we can go on to Daniel after we have studied Jeremiah we're, we're stopped by the Holy Spirit and before we can go up stage further those, I want to emphasize something this question of spiritual character is bound up with travail and Jeremiah is one of the greatest travailing spirits of the Bible. Well, I trust that this will uh, um, give us some comfort because there's one very wonderful thing about travail. It always has an issue. A wonderful thing. It always has an issue. Uh, that is a wonderful thing. And especially is it so when it is the travail of the Spirit. 
I think it is an exciting thing and a wonderful thing to be in any way a partner in the travail of God's Holy Spirit. What travail is going to be to produce the city, that bride? What travail? But what a tremendous thing it is to be part in any age or generation of those who've sought that city and who have been partners in the travail that will produce it. That's a tremendous thing. May the Lord help us to understand